Grace on Fire, episode 67. You're listening to Grace on Fire, home of Grace Nation. It's not just another podcast. It's the voice of a movement. Join now at MyGraceNation.com. Oh, man. What did I get myself into on this podcast today? Here we go. It's all about grace. You got to remember grace. Hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, a.k.a. Smitty, and I am your online pastor, and my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose. And ladies and gentlemen, today we are talking some big, big subjects. Super excited about today's show. And um, hey, I hope that you hang in there with me for the entire show because I think it's all about something that I am passionate about, and that is applying God's grace to every area of life. And that includes even the hard things. I gotta tell you, it's the hard part today. And so on today's show, I'm tackling the big issue of the season, which is the national anthem protest currently taking place in the National Football League. You know, I'm, I got to be crazy to even try this, but I'm going to do it. And uh, by God's grace and under God, that um, hopefully we'll get through the end of the show. And you know what? Hey, listen, that national conversation that is currently taking place on whether or not NFL players should be uh, kneeling if they have the right to do it or whether or not team owners should be even allowing What's going on? I'm, you know, I have some thoughts on this today, and uh, but you know, but let me just get right to the punchline, okay? Even even though I do not agree with these players' decision to kneel during the national anthem, I'm just gonna put that out there right now, regardless of their cause, and I'm not gonna even talk about their cause today. I'm just simply saying the decision to kneel, okay? Even though I don't agree with that, nevertheless, I maintain that in the United in the United States. Uh, you know, particularly here, you know, I support their decision for freedom of speech. I really do. And my reasoning for this is based on a deeper concern that I have as a pastor to do this, and that is to secure and preserve the right to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're interested in this point of view, then hang on with me today uh, as I get into the feature presentation. And if you're new to the show, just a quick update. The show format is this, is that I'm always uh, doing different parts of the show, a couple different segments. And on today's show, we're first going to go into some street theology, which actually has nothing to do with the NFL. Although, arguably, I could make that connection. Uh, so hang in there because we're going to be talking up uh, a storm today about uh, just last week following up on uh, my announcement that I really wanted to bring out some more Anglican emphasis in our street theology. And then also I have a tip of the week, which is a cool app uh, that I am using for my ministry actually for uh, church planting. You may not have known that I was a church planter, um, but I am. I am on a church. I am a church planter. I got to tell you, that's the hardest thing in the world to do is to be a church planter. So anyways, but uh, a lot of things to talk about here today. And remember that the, the point of the show, Grace on Fire, 
is just that. It's grace. It's how do you apply God's grace to every aspect of, of life? And that, that includes, you know, how we respond to other people in our culture and our society that are doing things that we just may not agree with. I mean, come on. And, um, you know, it's hard. And, and I got I just got to say this as a pastor, and, and I'm, I'm always concerned as a pastor, that whatever we do in the church, that our first reaction to these things is based upon how we are going to be viewed or how the gospel is going to be viewed um, by our response, by our lives. You know, that, that's just the bottom line. People are going to make decisions about the God we serve based upon the things in our reactions that fly out of our mouth. And I, I just, I, I mean, this is the reason why I'm so passionate about reforming evangelicalism. Um, and, and I just want to say this. It's not even about reforming Anglicanism. I, I just I just want to come right out and say that it's not about reforming Anglicanism. It's about reforming evangelicalism. And I'm not talking about making everybody five-point Calvinist. I'm talking about reforming evangelicals. I mean, I think that evangelicals are in desperate need for rethinking how we go about life and what we believe and and we've just got to do this we've and and I think we got to approach this from a number of angle, angles and and the reason why I even decided to tackle this is be this theme of NFL anthem protest is is simple it's because you know, I see evangelicals, you know, posting stuff again on Facebook that, you know, they're not thinking, they're reacting and not thinking. And we've got to become a people that are marked by thinking and we're not thinking. And so it really frustrates me. <laughs> Just, I get so frustrated. And so as a pastor, and so today I want you to hang in there with me. And so this is what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get into a question and that is, how an Anglican evangelical defines the word reformed. And and I hope that y'all hang with me on that. So if you're only interested in the NFL anthem protest, feel free to fast forward. I hope you'll listen to the entire show. Now let's get started as we get underway here. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. And then I was I was getting ready to go into this on, on and that's why I just would decide to go ahead and just quickly transition to the street theology because I think that my vision my vision for grace on fire is just that it's to reform evangelicals I was raised as an evangelical and I got to tell you I understand the nuances and the problems of being raised as or or in what I call you know white suburban white suburban evangelicalism. I mean, I I was raised in that. Okay, and there's a lot of good things about it, and there's also some not so good things about it. And I am glad that I was raised in white suburban evangelicalism. But we have to acknowledge right up front that it is latent with a lot of issues. And so as I have kind of traveled out of that, and I've I've begun to uh, look at life, and I and I've begun to approach my faith very differently and from very different perspectives. And I've had some, uh, some quite frankly, difficult things in my life that have jarred me out of that. But now it's time to go back into that. It's time to go back into, uh, you know, evangelicalism and say, hey, look, evangelicals, we, we, we've got to recapture some ideas here. And one of those important ideas 
I believe, is rising above the rising above the political fray. Now, I say that as an Anglican, and what I want to tell you is that Anglicanism, particularly in the 16th century, of which I'm going to talk to you about today, was very much a political movement. And so we've always struggled. And, and I just want to I just want to acknowledge this up front that as evangelicals, we've always struggled with relating to the government. We've always struggled with that. And so it's important that we understand that there is a tension in terms of our faith and in terms of how we respond to others. And so, uh, or, or respond to the government, et cetera. And, you know, sometimes we just haven't done things very well. So anyway, so I, I just say that because I want to leave it out there as we get into the feature presentation a little bit. But first of all, let's look, let's kind of digress here for just a moment. Because last week I went on the show and I basically said, hey, I'm really super excited about being a Reformed Evangelical Anglican. And, and then one of the immediate questions that was brought to my mind was, well, what is it that you mean by the word reformed? And that's an important question because, uh, like I said last week, that sometimes the word reformed carries with it a, it carries with it some baggage, okay? I just want to say that right up front. There's a lot of baggage to the word reformed. And some of that baggage is, is rightly, you know, some of that baggage is rightly put on the word because of, particularly in the last 20 years, but reformed folk just have a negative reputation. And so I, I want to say that I'm using that word reformed and I probably will stop using that word after this episode and I prefer the word reformational, but I want to use the word reform today because I think it's important to get to the root of what I'm talking about. So, so what am I talking about? Well, you know, this is the question. How do you define that word? And, and as I said, the word has got some baggage into it. So my entrance into reformed theology came through, guess what, as a Baptist, the five points of Calvinism or TULIP, and the five points of Calvinism, and if you don't know what those are, I'll put a link in the show notes for those, and and basically, if you were Reformed, then that meant you automatically embraced TULIP, all right? That's what most people think of as the five points of Calvinism. If you're listening to the show today, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, way to go, that's cool, don't worry about it, but for those of you who have any kind of background in Christianity, any kind of background in theology, any kind of background with what I'm talking about here, you'll understand what I'm saying. Unfortunately, the word reformed has been um, totally, totally eclipsed by five-point Calvinism here in North America, and I just want to go on the record and say right now that I do not embrace five-point Calvinism, all right? I'm just coming out there and saying it, and there, there's a lot of reasons for it, and we'll get into a lot of those details in later shows, later episodes, um, but I'm just telling you right up front, I am not a five-point Calvinist, and I get kind of frustrated at times when uh, that word is reformed, is associated with. So, so if I am going to come on the air and broadcast and say, well, reformed is not TULIP, and it's not Calvinism, then what the heck? You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? It's okay. I understand you depraved minds out there. Anyways, um, <laughs> so I obviously hold to some parts 
but we'll get into that later. Anyways, so what do I mean when I use the word reformed? Well, you got to remember something. First of all, Anglicanism is based in the 16th century, not the 17th century, okay? And, and it was clearly a, um, a 16th century movement, all right? And so essentially the word reform was represented by the reformers who were trying to reform the medieval Catholic Church, and particularly its abuses. Okay, so one of the chief concerns at that time, believe it or not, was the role of Scripture as the church's final authority, or sola scriptura. All right, so so what does that even mean, right? The chief concerns at that time was the role of the Bible— and its final authority. And it's simply, sola scriptura just simply means the Bible alone. Also, there was another issue, and that was the issue is what did baptism mean and Holy Communion? Uh, how were you saved? How was a person saved by God? Was it, you know, through uh, the church or was it through faith? And, you know, was it by grace alone? Uh, hence our term, grace on fire. And so, you know, what the reformers were trying to do was they were trying to clean up the medieval church because there was all kinds of problems that were taking place in the medieval church. And some of the abuses that were happening, I mean, they were pretty bad. But we have to recognize right up front that it was not a unilateral, it was not a unilateral uh, movement. It wasn't something that everybody just got on the same page and magically agreed. I mean, wouldn't that have been awesome, right? It would have been great if all these guys just got together and we could say 500 years later, we could like go back in time. Oh, if you're old enough, do you remember that movie, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? (laughs) That would have been awesome. Be like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And they go back in time to see Martin Luther. That would have been a cool movie. But anyways, so so the German reformers, they were not, they, they basically had three different kinds of, 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 of groups. You had the German reformers who were basically led by, Martin, led by Martin Luther. You had the Swiss reformers who were led by John Calvin and Peter Vermigli. And then you also had, believe it or not, the English reformers led by Archbishop Thomas Cramner, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley. And it's important to understand something, right what I just said. Notice that they were geographically based. So there was a reformation happening in Germany. There was a reformation happening in this in Switzerland. And there was a reformation happening in England. There was also a Dutch reformation, et cetera. I mean, it wasn't just in those three locations. Uh, the French were having struggles Um in Italy and Spain, basically, it was all just a quelch. There was nothing happening down in the southern part of Europe. And so it's important to acknowledge this. And the reason why is because we cannot assume that they were all saying the same thing. Okay? And today, what we have is we have Calvinism which emerged in the 17th century, although some people, uh, some historians are claiming that it happened in the 16th century. And, you know, there's perhaps uh, some truth to that. I don't want to go into that. But that was not the main concern for the reformers in England at the time. All right. In the 16th century, Thomas Cramner is emerging in Cambridge by 1520 and 1530. And he was, you know, he was criticizing Martin Luther. And so later on, the German theologians and the English theologians got together and they couldn't agree on some things. Bottom line, uh, what you have is you have a unique view 
or a unique reform movement that took place. Now, this is where I get very excited, all right? Because most of the time, most of the time, and I've gone to several reform seminaries, um, and you know, most of those seminaries really are not interested in 16th century uh, reformational theology. They're much more into the 17th century. Uh, but many of them, I will tell you, are, are trying to go back to the 16th century and to reread what these men were talking about. And I was exposed to the English Reformation through all of my Anglican studies. And I was, I mean, I'm just telling you, I'm just getting super excited about this. Okay. So how is that word reform then nuanced among Anglicans? And I think that's something important to realize. And I think that whenever we talk about the word reformed, most of the time we're talking about reformed Catholic. All right. Anglicans are reformed Catholics. Now you hear that, right? And you say, well, you know, are you are you trying to be like the Roman Church? And the answer is no, no. Part of the Reformation of the English Church was taking the English Church out of the Roman Church. Now, you know, did Henry get a divorce? Yes, but that was the mechanism by which it all took place. But it certainly wasn't the reason for it. It was the mechanism. And so what Thomas Cramner did and what English theologians, the evangelicals were doing, and I'll get to that in just a moment here, but what the English evangelicals were doing was that they were trying to reform their church. And they were trying to reform a national state church. And I have to tell you that during that time period, there was all kinds of intense conflict among traditionalists and evangelicals over how the church would be reformed, over how the rituals were being, uh, how the rituals and, and the nuances and the liturgies and, 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 the, and the sacraments and the rites and all these things were taking place. And so this took place over a span of time. So in no way would five points of Calvinism be associated with these men. They had their own unique theology. And what I think is so cool about it is that it's a very restrained theology. In other words, they did not press too far into the mysteries of the Bible, particularly as it relates to God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And they were very content in ways to leave things alone. Now, Puritans would come along later uh, in the Anglican church and the Anglicans uh, Puritans would try to push further, and you know that's an interesting dialogue right there. But my point here simply is this, is that the English Reformation produced an evangelical or gospel-centered theology. Now, Dimar McCulloch, who was a British historian of Tudor England during the 16th century, he writes the following, in common with many historians to describe the religious reformism, which, by the way, notice he doesn't even use the word reformed. He just talks about the religious reformism, which developed in England. Evangelicalism is the religious outlook, which makes the primary point of Christian reference the good news of the euangelion or the text of scripture generally. All right. What he was saying here is that many historians today describe the religious reformism which developed in England as evangelical, as evangelical. Sorry if that wasn't clear. I didn't write all the notes down. But he's saying here that to, to look back at what was happening, they were evangelicals. 
And what excites me, and this is so important to recognize, that out of this evangelical theology, most of the English-based Protestant denominations were born out of that world. So you have Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and, and probably many others. They all can look to this fountain that I call Anglicanism and find very many or find many similar things and themes rooted and grounded in the English church. And I think it's critical to understand as evangelicals. Now, now notice here, you notice what I'm saying here. I'm talking about evangelicals. I'm not talking about reform. I'm talking about evangelicals. That what I think we need to do as evangelicals and me as an Anglican evangelical that part of it is trying to rediscover some of the principles of theology, some of the principles of, 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 of Bible reading that shaped and formed this English ethos. And the reason why I say that is because what we have today is that if you look at the major denominations in, in uh, North America, they're all, all struggling with, with all kinds of problems that have emerged out of the combinations, the weird combinations of traditions and liberal theology, as well as all kinds of other kinds of influences, to what we have today is something that is far removed from the rich, robust heritage that we have. And so I see my role here as definitely championing what I call classic gospel-centered evangelical theology, which, by the way, happened to be Anglican, and that we can see that there is some wonderful, wonderful principles and some wonderful, wonderful heritage. I like to call it theological gold that is just sitting there waiting to be rediscovered. And so, you know, in some sense, I think it's better to use the word reformational rather than reformed, particularly if reformed means five-point Calvinism. Because I, like I said from the very beginning, I, I reject that system. I reject that system. And, and like I said, down the road, I'll tell you why. I'm not going to go into it today. But, but I want you to understand something even deeper before we transition here. That part of what was taking place in the 16th century was something else. And it was a, a, a renaissance in academics and there was a whole thing called a humanist movement. And the humanist movement really championed an idea called ad fontes. Now, ad fontes is a Latin phrase, okay? And basically what it says is you go back to the original sources or fountains, that whole idea of font, fountains, fontes. It's the idea of recovering and examining original ideas and comparing them to the thoughts and beliefs of the current generation. So I maintain that for evangelicals to have any hope in moving forward. I mean, my goodness, this is where I get really frustrated, okay? Evangelicals, we have lost our heritage. We have lost our categories. We we, we really don't even understand how to approach and, and deal with cultural issues because we don't have the foundation that our our forefathers had. We don't have the education. We don't have the categories. And so we just knee-jerk react. And we allow our emotions and our superficial, shallow theology drive our reactions. And we need to stop that because what is at stake is the gospel. 
It is the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, we have to remember that our jobs here on the earth is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and make disciples. And if we're saying stupid things, come on. And so in thinking stupid things and coming up with dumb patterns, I think we really need to stop. I mean, we have a job here to do. And our job is to represent Jesus Christ. And sometimes I think what happens is we get caught up in all of the politics and, and, and really what I'd call the, the, the spirit of the age, not realizing that there's a greater spirit at work, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so we need to reform evangelicalism. And so we need to look back at all of the great reformers, John Wesley, John Stott. We need to look at, you know, Thomas Cramner and these other guys to listen and to learn what they did, how they attacked problems in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the very heart of what I believe it means to be a gospel-centered evangelical Anglican. And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week. All right, I'm going to stop preaching for just a moment. I got a little preachy there, but you know, hey, listen, I am a preacher, I'm a pastor, and so sometimes you just need to get a little sermon there. So tip of the week, how flock note, whatever, I mean, what a note, what a name, but I'm going to talk about this app. How Flocknote improved communication with my congregation. I got to tell you, this is so funny. So I'm talking to my wife about this app, Flocknote. And for whatever reason, she heard the word flock you, right? Now, you know, because Grace on, Grace on Fire, I know where your minds are. You heard flock you and you know exactly where that goes. And I, it, so she's like, what is it that flock you? I'm like, it's called flock note, not flock you, flock note. And um, so what is flock note? Well, it's this uh, texting service that I use. It's a great app. And, and let, me, let me just kind of tell you about this. Okay. So uh, the silver lining of Hurricane Irma was that I had to ask the question, how do you communicate with people when email is completely knocked out? All right. So prior to Hurricane Irma blowing through, I principally relied on email to communicate with my congregation. You know, I would write the emails, send them out. And, you know, that's just what I did. But but what happened with Hurricane Irma was that the 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 uh, cable services, the internet companies were down. And so service was down and power was out, but people had their cell phones. And so they would go and charge them up. And the cell towers, for the most part, were were working, although in some places where the power was out, those cell towers were not working as well. So keep that in mind. But I had to figure out a way to communicate with my congregation. So I called my virtual assistant who lives in Tennessee, and her name's Jackie. And I said, Jackie, I said, I, I've got to set up a text service because I have no way of communicating with my congregation right now, and um, I needed to communicate that we were going to have services, but we're going to have services at a different location because the church uh, power out the church was gone, 
And so this is what she did. She said, okay, so I'll research a few. So she researched a few of these apps and services and came back with Flocknote. And so let me just tell you quickly about it. It, it, It's an app. It's on your phone. It's on your computer. And basically, it's a text messaging service. It also has an email newsletter function on it, which I think is pretty cool. And um, you basically use this as your communication hub. And so you can upload a list of people via CSV file. You can upload a list to that. And then um, from your church directory. Now, let me tell you what we had to do. I literally had to write down, uh, handwrite uh, on a piece of paper, names and phone numbers because could not access our directory because it was all online. And so I literally, this is what I did. I hand wrote out the the paper or on paper, the directory of everybody's name I could possibly think of. And by the way, I came up short, but I got everybody, as, as many people as I could think of, and then I put them on uh, a piece of paper. I took a picture of it with my phone and uploaded it to an app that we use for communication and sent it to her. And then she had to set everything up. Now, the cool thing is I had a virtual assistant who lived in Tennessee who could help this or make this happen. So, you know, kudos for me. But, um, you know, get ahead of yourself. Don't wait till you get into a crisis like I did. But this crisis forced us to do this. So you can divide um, your your congregation or groups, you know, you know, or ministry or whatever you're doing, um, into different groups, subs, uh, sub segments, and then you can send out tailored messages to to those individual groups. So honestly, I I used it for our friends of Redeemer, who is our fundraising. You know, it's for people that pray for, um, that uh, give money to our cause of, of planting Redeemer Anglican Church. And um, I mean, it's just such a cool, cool feature. And then I can get urgent messages out. So guess what happened? Saturday, Saturday, I had a phone call from the pastor of the church that we rent from. And he said, Jonathan, I have bad news. The air conditioner is out. Now, listen, we live in Florida and that building can get up to 91 degrees inside. And nobody wants to be in a building without air conditioning just because of the humidity, the heat levels. I mean, it's just not a good idea. So I had to find out an alternative location, found an alternative location and was able to send a message out via flock note uh, to my congregation, and basically, I got most people there. I mean, we still had to 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 route people, but I got enough people um, out. I got word out to enough people that they realized, oh, we've got something happening. And so, honestly, great app. Um, here's the best of all. It's a flat rate pricing, uh, which makes it extremely affordable. So if you go to MyGraceNation forward slash GOF, I think 67 here, if you go to that uh, on the show notes, I said face notes apparently in my previous episode, but in my show notes, uh, I'll have a link there. And if you click on the link, you'll get a $30 credit. So, um, and I'll also get a $30 credit, which is cool because that helps support planting efforts at Redeemer Anglican Church. So go check out Flocknote. I think it's a super, I'm just thrilled with this app. Uh, And by the way, you may have a different texting service uh, that you think is even better. I'd love to hear from you about that. Uh, But right now, Redeemer is using Flocknote. So it's it's just a great app and a great way to communicate. And now it's time for our feature presentation. 
And on our feature presentation, we're talking about the NFL anthem protests and how should evangelicals respond. Now, I got to tell you this. I'm going to give you a disclaimer here, okay? I really didn't want to talk about this, all right? But I'm talking about this today because last week I was talking with our friend Matt Wright, who was on episode 54, and he mentioned how many people are reacting to the NFL anthem protest. And he said that he would like for me to weigh in on the subject. And I was like, well, thank you very much that I should weigh in my opinion on this and uh, be happy to do that. But the truth of the matter is I was super reluctant to approach this topic. And the reason why is simple is because it's full of racial issues um, mixed with national pride uh, and uh, bipartisan politics. Hmm. Wow. Oh, and sports. Yeah, let's just throw them all in there. Oh, maybe we should add religion to that too. And then we could just really all get upset uh, with each other and fight. And that and that's my reluctance because anything I potentially say is definitely going to touch a nerve in one of those areas. And if you take a contrary position than mine, all right, and and I'm just going to say it, I'm a a white guy that lives in, you know, Longwood, Florida. And, you know, that's me. And I I don't have the same perspectives that everybody. And and I have a very limited point of view. And and I recognize that I have a lot to learn about um, what others and and other people uh, from other different uh, nationalities and backgrounds, et cetera, um, uh, they have very different perspectives and experiences. And I can tell you, I learned a lot about that uh, just through my work with the LGBT community. But regardless of that, Regardless of that, it feels to me like it's almost impossible to talk about this without offending somebody. But isn't that the issue? Isn't that the issue? You know, in our culture today, we have two clashing values. Okay, so value one is this, exercising our freedom of speech. Man, as Americans, we're all about freedom of speech, right? I mean, that's what we are. I mean, that is one of our central values. We raise our kids with the idea of freedom of speech. Now, we know that freedom of speech does not guarantee that you can say anything anywhere at any time and uh, you know be completely protected. Because, for example, and it's the classic example, you cannot yell fire in an auditorium of a movie theater or somewhere else. You can't do it, all right, because it creates harm. So we all we automatically recognize, and in the case law of the United States, we recognize that there are limitations to freedom of speech. Hate speech is a great example. We can't do hate speech. So, uh, you know, we we realize right up front that freedom of speech is important to us, but in some ways is limited, regardless of how important it is. So that's value number one. Here's value number two. All right, and this is nowhere written anywhere in our Constitution or the Bill of Rights, but it has become a cultural value that is is really at odds with value number one, and here it is, not being offended by hateful speech or speech we disagree with. In our culture today, if we're offended, and we talk about offensive language, we and we get offended, right? Somehow, we want to squelch somebody else's freedom of speech. Why? Because we're offended, and it's offensive. 
And so we need to understand right up front that you cannot have both ways. And, and this is the problem. We can't hold this tension in this culture. So on the one hand, we want freedom of speech. On the other hand, though, we basically just want people to say the things that we agree with. And we get really upset when people say things that we radically disagree with. And so we have these conflicting, clashing values. Now, listen, I'm just giving you my point of view, and it could be wrong, and it's radically flawed, and it's flawed and limited by my own experience. But I'm going to tell you something here that I think that this is an important thought, and I'm talking principally now to evangelicals. Because as evangelicals, I'm going to get to this point in just a moment, but as evangelicals, we have a higher value a higher purpose that's in mind here. And we're going to get to that higher purpose, but let me kind of give you an entry point into this conversation. All right. So last Sunday, last Sunday, this, this was my initial reaction and I'm, I'm going to totally own this. Okay. So, well, not, not last Sunday because this is going to air on Friday, in, you know, October. So it's a couple of weeks ago when the whole thing blew up. All right. Which I believe was September 24th. So when the whole thing blew up in September 24th, here I was, it was a Sunday afternoon, church was over, and um, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and I was out, had my smoker going. Why? Because when you watch Sunday afternoon football, you know, you got to make some killer barbecue because those two things go hand in hand. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Anyways. So, you know, I, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to just watch some football and make some barbecue and and just be, you know, the little fat, content American in my subdivision. That's what I wanted to do. And so what happened was I turned on the TV. I had no background as to what had happened prior. I did not under I did not know about uh, the the the. Uh, presidential involvement. I did not know about Twitter. I did not know about all the things that were going on that triggered all of this stuff. Um, But all I knew and what I saw was that the news kept showing players, and that wasn't even the news, okay? I was watching the NFL. I don't remember which channel I was watching, whether it was CBS or Fox, but the coverage kept including and kept showing all the teams that were not were neither standing or excuse me that either didn't show up as a whole team or you had large groups of the players that were kneeling all right and at this point i really just didn't know what was actually happening it just it just caught me completely off guard and here's the problem i was totally totally offended and in anger and i'm just going to confess this in anger, I just shut off the TV and vowed that I probably would never watch the NFL again. That was my initial response. You know, I was just totally offended because I felt like, you know, these players were disrespecting our flag. I felt like the country that I love, they were disrespecting the country and I and, and disrespecting the people that I'm desperately trying to reach with the gospel, you know? And so, you know, I had to really work through 
that emotion. And of course, the rhetoric didn't help. So, you know, you get on Facebook, right? You know, because when you ever want to work through an emotion, the most healthy thing you can do is go on Facebook, right? You know, because that's that's just what you do. Nah, wrong. What did you do? You just get more aggravated because people started venting on social media. And whether it was Facebook or Twitter or something else, and everybody's going clashing back and forth, and pastors are saying this, that, and the other. And, and you know, and it, it just, it, I just got so sick of it. And the reason why I got so sick of it was because it was just another. Another painful reminder of just how split and divided our country has become. And that hurts me. You know, and, and, and you know, so I, I had to kind of go through that. So the following week, you know, I, I started talking with people and, and I got caught up in the rhetoric and the frustration of the controversy surrounding the NFL. And I was just mad. I mean, I was just, I was in shock and I was mad. Um, but I got to be honest with you, as I thought about it, where was this coming from? This is where it's coming from. I think it's coming from more or less the fatigue that I'm feeling that's stemming around all that, that stems from the racial tension that has lingered in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. And, and I'm, frankly, I think it's just clouding my judgment here. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest in how I felt. Because I've been very frustrated over the last year with just how divided our country has become due to the 2016 presidential election. Now, if you go through my podcast, I'd have I don't I think I spent zero amount of time talking about politics in 2016. I stayed away from it because I knew that if you if you weren't in support of either candidate, didn't matter what it was, you're going to alienate one other person. And part of crafting your life for a higher purpose is keeping the higher purpose in mind. And so you have to rise above the rhetoric of the culture in order to be able to criticize it or critique it or to improve it. And so I really tried to stay away from all of that. But in that process of staying away from it, I also just grew saddened by what I was seeing, saddened by all the division, saddened that there was people out there who, you know, were, you know, just creating so much clash and controversy. And the media just kept pumping, pumping, pumping all of this racial division. And and so I realized something that, you know, I just got frustrated with it. Then Matt calls me and he says, hey, you need to weigh in on this. This is a big deal. And then he did something and this and this kind of jarred me out of my, you know, apathy and jarred me out of my thoughts for a little while. And it was just what I needed. This is what he says. He says, I think this is something that you should consider think talking about. Why? Because you did such a good job. Thank you, Matt, for talking about the gospel, bringing the gospel to LGBT plus persons. Now, I don't know if I that latter part is true. But I do speak on that because I am concerned about the missional aspect of the church and, and how the church presents itself to the LGBT plus community. That doesn't make me a liberal, by the way. It just makes me a pastor concerned about bringing Jesus to people who desperately need him. And so I realized something right then and there. I said, I realized that the same principles apply because we're talking fundamentally about people that I may not agree with, regardless of, of race, uh, but just doing things politically and, and, and saying things and doing things and demonstrating things that may be offensive to me, but I need to move past that. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. 
You know, Jesus, Jesus was a radical. Every time the Pharisees tried to trip him up, I mean, every time they tried to trip him up, he always turned the table on them. It was amazing. It was, it was just, it was thrilling to watch Jesus turn the table on the Pharisees. And so when uh, the Pharisees came up, these are the religious people that wanted to corner Jesus and, and make him out to be a fraud and a phony and basically get rid of him. They were jealous as heck of him. And they basically said, you know, who should we pay taxes to? Because they hated paying taxes to the Romans, but they had to do it anyways. And so Jesus says, pull out a coin. And he says, you know, who, whose face is on there? And they say Caesar's. And then he responds this way. I love this. Render to Caesar that the, the things that are, are, let me say this all over again. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Paul picks up the same idea. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, I've got to tell you something. That's a loaded phrase, a loaded verse, and it would be real easy to take that verse and look at all the bad things that governments have done and say, really, God established this government? We have to be careful here that we don't that we don't nuance this verse and do things with this verse that it's it's not necessarily doing. It's just simply saying to Christians in whatever context that they find themselves in that they need to live lives in submission to the government. Now, Bonhoeffer, Nazi Germany. There are exceptions to all of this, and we have to couch these in terms. But Paul is writing to a group of people that lived in Rome, and at the time, they may have uh, uh, undergone a little bit of persecution, but not to the scale that other governments and other places and other times and other parts of the world may have gone through. So just put that in perspective. I'm going to say, Americans, we don't have those problems. But now listen to what this says. Paul goes on to say something here in verse 7 that's critical of Romans chapter 13. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Okay, that sounds just like what Jesus said. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Okay, so if you owe a businessman, you got to pay him. Even if he's somebody you don't like, even if he worships Caesar and you worship Jesus, even if he's a rotten pagan and you owe him money, you pay him. That's what Paul's saying here. But then he takes it even further. He goes from money to respect and honor. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, evangelicals, particularly conservative ones, we have not done a good job with the latter half of Romans 7, or excuse me, Romans 13, 7b. We just haven't done it. I mean, this is where I think we should experience the conviction of God's word, that is the Bible, and to say this, that very often we are lousy at showing honor and respect. And as evangelicals, we need to contend for honor. So I think that in the right way, we need to, I believe, contend for the honor that the national anthem represents, okay? 
So this is where I'm going to start taking a little bit of a turn here. And you might think that I'm going to come out against the NFL players. I'm not. But let me just say this much. I think that we need to, there is a right way to contend for the honor of the national anthem, particularly those who died for the right to freedom, liberty, and justice for all. I mean, I just, I have, I have military people in my own home, or it's not my home home, but my family. And, and I've seen what the toll of war can do. And you know what? I, I know other families that have military backgrounds and in the toll that they've had to, that they've undergone and that they have had to pay what for my rights to have the freedom of speech. But we have to remember something that freedom of speech cuts both ways. And this is the hard part. The same group of people, i.e. evangelicals like me, who get angry that a baker was thrown in jail for refusing refusing to bake a cake for a gay couple, are also very often the ones who are angry about football players kneeling during the song. You can't have it both ways. You cannot contend for the right of a baker to refuse to bake a cake for a gay person. I'm not saying, by the way, that I agree with that baker. I'm just simply saying that, you know, if we're going to have the right of freedom of speech and we're going to contend for it, then we have to contend for the freedom of speech regardless of the people that are oppressed. And that's the hard part because as evangelicals, we're not used to the ones being oppressed. We're not. And so when someone says or does something that we don't agree with, we get really upset. And frankly, we get pretty nasty about it. And I think we have to guard ourselves in our thinking. We need to guard ourselves in our thinking. So should we legislate that all people stand during the national anthem? You know, I I, got to be honest with you. I hope not. Because I think that that would usher in a slippery slope of totalitarianism in our country. And I got to tell you something, Grace Nation, if there is anything that I fear more right now than, you know, whether or not an NFL player plays, you know, kneels during the national anthem, what I am fearing the most is our federal government becoming a totalitarian system. By totalitarian system, I mean gradually moving to a place where they begin dictating and taking away rights of freedom of speech. Because if that happens as a pastor, I will lose the ability to preach the gospel in freedom. It's already happened in Europe. It's already happened in Germany where pastors have stood up to preach the Bible, to preach the teaching of the Bible on human sexuality, the conservative orthodox views of, of sexuality. And it's been judged in, in Germany as hatred, as hate speech. And pastors have, have faced fines. They've been thrown in jail. And I, I just want to say, is that something that we want to see here in this country? If it's not, then we need to be able to speak up and speak for and allow for speech and demonstration that very may that very well may be offensive to us, nevertheless protects the vital right that we have to do and to proclaim the gospel. You know, it's interesting to me that you, you have two football players. Um, prior to all this stuff that happened with the NFL anthems and in and, and the last couple of weeks. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot. 
you have two NFL players, uh, Colin Kaepernick and Tim Tebow. Did you know both of them are Christians? Both of them are Christians. And if you talk with, and I, and I read an interesting article in the Washington Post about the differences in their faith. Now, Tim Tebow, he comes obviously from an evangelical background, and he is, is definitely motivated by that. And he puts John 3.16 on his face paint. And then you have Colin Kaepernick, who's also a Christian, but he's coming from a much more uh, mainline, uh, non-evangelical background, but yet he's still being motivated by his Christian faith to do the things that he's doing. And yet, when you look at how evangelicals responded to each one of them, we totally embraced Tim Tebow, and we totally denied Colin Kaepernick. And the problem with that is that it actually shows the, the, the bifurcation of Christianity itself. And truth be known is that we needed to contend for both of them. I actually put on Facebook, uh, I remember a year ago, when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling during the national anthem. And I basically just, no, this is what I did. I put on Facebook, this is what I said. I said, um, I said the same right, and I don't remember exactly the wording, but I basically I said it like this, the same right um, to preach the gospel. Or said, if I'm going to contend for the right to preach the gospel, then I must allow for an NFL player to kneel during the national anthem. And you know what's interesting about it? Most people liked that. But I guarantee if I put that on there today, that I would probably get a far more negative reaction. What's changed? Well, I think it's the political climate. That's what's changed because of our culture and because of the, because of a division that's facing us. So, you know, I think it's very important, very important that we realize that we're dealing with very delicate issues and we need to be thoughtful on how we respond and we need to always keep a bigger picture in mind. And that is the higher purpose of God, the higher purpose of God, of being able to live gospel-centered lives, proclaiming the liberating power of Christ. And even further than that, if even if you're listening to this and you say, well, you may not buy into all of those things, but even if you're going to craft your life for a higher purpose, even in the process of crafting and designing your lives, you need the freedom to be able to do those things. And if we start taking away the rights of people to express themselves, I am fearful above all things, that we could fall into a totalitarian state, and we must resist totalitarianism at all cost. I think we need to, here's the bottom line, I think we need to remember as Christians that we must tolerate dissenting views, even national political, political ones, particularly in the areas of freedom of speech. Why? Because our right to preach the gospel is always at stake. That is our most important political right. And therefore, I think we need to be thoughtful how we approach issues related to our right of freedom to speech so that we don't inadvertently sabotage ourselves in the future, in the future of our children. And that brings us to the end of our show. I hope this was helpful to you. Thank you so much for listening. And now I pray this, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verb Creative Production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit MyGraceNation.com.